welcome everyone to the latest outing of Podcastle in the Sky. For this episode, we're departing from the gentle, humane world of Studio Ghibli and taking a U-turn into the blood-soaked id of two real-world martial artists with the 2018 adaptation of Kaisuke Itagaki's long-running manga Baki the Grappler and the 1988 Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle Bloodsport. I'm Tom. I'm Amber. I'm Jesse. And I'm William. Okay, so I would like to present to you guys that this, both this series, Baki, and the movie Bloodsport, is basically about male love. <laughs> like, not just, and I'm not even just talking about, like, romantic love. I'm talking about love of the physical form, love of the idea of male relationships, love of male rivalry just it embodies the the celebration of of manhood um i'm glad you brought that up so just to uh, quickly summarize um both of these things this uh, just about um martial arts tournament and they're both really hyper masculine and i i think it's basically inevitable when uh something is so hyper-masculine in visual media that it ends up completely homoerotic. I mean, look at the movie 300. That was like a, like, even though like textually it was homophobic, it was saying like the characters were saying that they were totally against anachronistically against homosexual love. The way it came across was pro um, masculine love and these two things, they were so totally that way as well. Right, I mean, I think it's sort of indicative of the uh, <laughs> extremism that we're talking about, where in Bloodsport, you know, in most kind of schlocky 80s movies, 70s movies, even if it is like a masculine-oriented movie, and I make the comparison, for example, to Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee vehicle, even in Enter the Dragon, there's some, like, mild TNA. There's, even though there is a female love interest in Bloodsport, there's not a single shot of TNA in the whole schlocky movie, but there is a, a little scene of Jean-Claude Van Damme's just, like, Michelangelo sculpted ass. So it's the only shot of fan service in the entire movie. Yes. And it's not quite as extreme with Baki. Um, there is a, 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 a more developed... A more developed... Uh, love story in Baki by comparison but still the emphasis is on uh, this like musculature in the human form that so exceeds any possible configuration of, of muscles and, and mass that any real human could possibly achieve that it is it's like almost pornographic it's uh, it's great I would say that like yeah you're right like I feel in both Baki and in Bloodsport, the camera is just lovingly focused on these male forms, particularly in the nude. You know, you get, of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme's ass in Bloodsport, but in Baki, the nudity level is like through the roof. You, you've got people grappling in the nude, you've got people's clothes tearing out, you've got like what was it oliver who like literally takes off his clothes and you see the see the shadow of his giant clearly erect dick it's it's just insane how the camera is just like kind of a little bit leering at these dudes <laughs> yeah 
yeah. I mean, even, you know, even aside from the camera, I mean, at the end of Bloodsport, again, there is a theological interest in Bloodsport. And I think it's the case, to borrow a red-letter media term, of the not-gaze, where she was probably included, because the filmmakers were afraid that if she wasn't there, the audience might get ideas. But, like, the the impassioned statement of, of like, human connection at the end of Bloodsport is not to the romantic interest. It's to Jean-Claude Van Damme's battle brother. They look deep into each other's eyes, and they're like, I'll be there for you always, anywhere. It, yeah, it's, it's more always... explicit than that, Tom. He says, I love you, specifically. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it is very much in both in both outings, it's sort of this world, this masculine world, that only, only men, only men punching each other can understand. And it's, it's just this whole, and I, you know, it's, it is worth noting to varying degrees, you know, uh, Itagaki is a real world martial artist. Frank Dukes, Bloodsport is based off of his, uh, I mean, we can get into him. He's exaggerated his accomplishments just a little bit, but he was a real world real-world martial artist, and the movie is based on his writings, if not his life. And so it is, you, you do are sort of getting a little sliver of the sort of mentality of this, that there can only be, it's almost like berserk in a way, where there's, there's a connection that people only practicing their craft can, can meet with, make with each other. Uh, so we, uh, we mentioned the uh, female love interest in Bloodsport, but she adds nothing to the narrative. Like, I don't even remember her name at all, and I just saw the movie recently, right? She's a, she, like Tom was saying, she's a prop in the story. For me, I, I think that she's not there for the needs of the narrative, but for its, for, for thematic purposes. Bloodsport is many things, but it's a story of proper American masculinity, which also needs proper American femininity as well. So it's a, it's a story of correct gender roles. So essentially it's a propaganda for heterosexuality. It's, it's both the movie, it's both shallow and subtle in its message. And it's, it's weird just how, um, inconsequential the sole woman in the movie is to the actual story itself. Yeah, I would say that when it comes to the blood sport love interest in particular, I mean, we can talk about Baki in a second and, and his love interest, which I feel like they threw in a few things to try to make her more than just proving that Baki isn't gay, you know? But in blood sport, she might as well be a cardboard cutout, you know? Like, she's barely... I, I just rewatched this film and I can barely remember what her point was yeah well she's the journalist well yeah yeah the, the I mean, role of being a, a journalist gives her an expository purpose yeah she gets I, to explain a little about how this thing is obscure how yes, it's that's not true. heard about how it's mysterious that's, that's kind of i guess that's a little bit yeah. our audience in you know she is yeah. but like as soon as we get as soon as we focus completely on the tournament itself she's she becomes completely unnecessary to the story you know, right. she... Well, she's also needed as, as someone to kind of... She generates a little drama. Yeah, to push back against Van Damme. Van Damme needs someone to go, you, you shouldn't do this, you'll get yourself killed. You know, there needs, there needs to have that kind of conversation. And and his other and his other friend is not the kind of guy who's going to tell that to him. 
So she she's uh, a bit of a buzzkill, basically. Yeah. Granted, the agents also fill that role, so it's sort of double. Yeah, up, yeah. But, but uh, the agents are uh, kind of a hostile influence. Like she, she's someone he's supposed to be responsive to. That's true. That's whereas true. the agents are just people he needs to dodge and loop around and so on. I'm sorry. I just feel like I mean, even with that on her plate, it's. <sighs> It's hard because it's like when you put in a character that whose whole job is to tell the main character that what they're trying to do is crazy and why don't you just come, why don't you just stop, you know, and then make it into a female voice, you know, it, it essentially, it, it makes, I mean, it makes the narrative into one where you're like, femininity is quitting before you achieve greatness because you might, you know, get yourself killed. Achieving greatness is more important than dying, than the, the threat of death. So, you know, and, you know, lots and lots of movies and, and especially action movies have this female character in there. So I'm not, like, trying to pinpoint Bloodsport. And I want to reiterate, I really love Bloodsport as a movie, you know? So, like, I just, I just wish that, like, I wish these kind of, media would just go all in on the fucking homoeroticism, you know? Don't even have that character. Don't have the need to prove Jean-Claude Van Damme's masculinity by his ability to fuck a lady, you know? (laughs) Uh, But I also understand, you know, media of its time, etc., etc., you know? I I will understand one thing, though, that's really funny to me. To a lesser extent with Bloodsport, but especially with Baki, is, you know, <laughs> you know Baki is like, if, for people who haven't watched it, like, it's so, the ultraviolence is at such an extreme level. The things that happen to people's bodies, uh, voluntarily and otherwise are just grotesque. It, it verges into body horror. But then the romance in it is like so chaste and even sweet. <laughs> and even Jean Claude Van Damme in Bloodsport is sort of the same. Like he's, he's very sort of boyish and charming. And that aspect is sort of actually different from a lot of these movies. I mean, I'm thinking maybe something like The Sword and the Sorcerer, you know, where the guy is kind of uh, brusque and coercive. And then you have these, which are just like so depraved in one sense. But then, you know, very sort of. Again, I think sort of chaste, you know, even gentle is almost the term in some ways. And just aside from that, episode 20, uh, Baki, even if you don't watch this show, you have to watch what is maybe one of the greatest love scenes ever devised in fiction. You could say I'm exaggerating. In this case, I'm absolutely not. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever watched in my entire life. Okay, well, about that love scene, I was actually going to bring that up as well. So yeah, that episode has um, Baki and his girlfriend having sex for the first time. When it starts off, it starts off with them kissing, and there's an x-ray of them kissing. You can see, like, their internal organs, and like, I don't know, like, their bones um, moving together as they're kissing, and it's, for me, it was, like, disgusting. I was like, what the hell? It's like these, these um, bags of flesh just, like, pushing against each other it it was completely not romantic it was like god actually for me i didn't even find that scene erotic it was just kind of happening it's like uh, i guess they're having sex it's, it's bizarre yeah no it's but i think it's it's an encapsulation of the entire baki ethos baki is a series that is 
fascinated by like the human body and what you can do with the human body. And obviously, in the case of the show, as I mentioned earlier, it goes far beyond what any real human being could possibly accomplish. But like, you know, the the sculpting of the human form and she's basically superhumans. And, like, what you can do to other people with that strength and that power. And the, the love scene is sort of that same, almost clinical uh, sort of approach where it's like you're, you're scientifically looking at it. I mean, the, the key line in that scene is that he's like, loving is just like fighting. And in fighting, you do, pe- do to people what they don't want to do. And loving, you do what they do want to do. And so it's like you're, you know, you're responding, you're reacting to... You have your body, the other person has their body, and you're sort of reacting and interacting with what they do. And I think, again, it's that very clinical martial artist mentality where you're looking at everything through the lens of like an art form and, and seeing how all the pieces link together. Completely bizarre, totally unique, but it all it, it is all sort of coming from the same place, which makes it interesting. I, I would say that I see the love interest and the love story in Baki quite a bit different than I do in Bloodsport. In Bloodsport, I feel like, you know, it was there so that, again, Jacques Claude Van Damme had someone who would say, no, you can stop, don't kill yourself, and also have sex with to prove that he's not gay. I feel in Baki, it's a bit different because Baki is so much, even as strong as he is, he is clearly a teenage boy. You get a very strong sense of the fact that he's still just a kid. You know, like, I love this scene when she comes in in her underwear and lays next to him and his thought process throughout that moment, because he's clearly freaking the fuck out. And it's a real reaction that we've all had when it's like the first person that you've met or even like a new person like that that the all the thoughts that just swirl through your head before before you let your bodies take over you know and i felt like that was it was just very it was just different you know it was a different yeah. feel if the their relationship like it's not like super deeply developed or anything but it no. does feel like two people and you actually you get why they like each other and like i said it's, yeah. it's actually sweet that. yeah exactly i mean again the narrative does things that i feel like a lot of these shows do where you know she's kidnapped at one point and you know she does i guess in the previous version the previous show she did ask why he fought you know in this version she seemed pretty much if not okay, definitely resigned to the fact that he was a fighter and that's what he was going to do, you know? So it wasn't, he didn't have that same kind of pull from fighting that happened in Bloodsport. But overall, like she, <laughs> my fiance and I were watching it and, and I was, and we kept joking that like, Baki's all about consent, man. That boy, he, he's not going to touch her. <laughs> You know, she she's going to be the first one to make the and like she, like every time she she had to show a serious sign that she was into things before he would kiss her before like she was the one who got in bed with him you know like that that is that is a little different like letting the girl have more agency especially about sexuality and especially in I mean it's so rare that I have seen very many anime that have teenagers in them where they actually have sex you know where it goes beyond just like the puppy love stuff you know 
Yeah, so, you can uh, you can kind of tell the manga was originally writ- written in the eighties because the the characters actually have sex and they're not weird about it. Whereas if mm-hmm. it was happening now, it would be all this horrible fan service or something. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. That's yeah. Um, that's another thing too. She was very much not fan service. You know, even when she was, even when they undressed her, it didn't feel. I mean, like, it was kind of gross, but it was like, like when she was kidnapped, you know, it was kind of gross, but at the same time, the gross, it wasn't, it didn't feel like fan service to me. It didn't feel like you were supposed to be ogling her, you know, it felt like she had been kind of violated rather than put there on display so that teenage boys watching would, would get like sweaty, you know? Right. Granted, part of that is probably just like everyone in Baki is built like a... Oh yeah, <laughs> Space Marine. But anyway, go ahead, William. Yeah. Um. Yeah. One thing I think is the difference between the the two female leads is partially simply due to structure. If you have a TV series or a manga that's long running, you're going to need a bunch of characters, and those characters are going to need to be developed to some extent. So it would make sense to give Baki a love interest with something going on. But Bloodsport barely has characters. As Plenty of principal figures who only say a handful of lines the entire movie. It is purely this expression of bodies mashing together, so to speak, and these larger-than-life movie personalities inhabiting the bodies. And uh, the characters, while his girlfriend is like a very bland character, none of these are very interesting characters. None of these are particularly well-written characters. And the ones that really are effective are entirely through the fight scenes, through the uh, through their vibes, through their you know, charisma, and so on. Regarding the whole bodies mashing against each other thing, I do have to give props to the sound directing in Baki. It really emphasizes the sounds of the human body, like blood spattering, or when people are gulping as they drink water, and like flesh thumping and like bones scrunching. It's, it's always the guy's. The sounds from the guys that they're cranking up the volume on it. Uh, it never happens to the girlfriend. But the end result is just making you really aware that human bodies are just like these bags of flesh just smushing against each other. And, and uh, in Baki, it goes even further. The flesh that they show is like grotesque. It's disgusting with the giant muscles and the malformed bodies, it's not even something to admire anymore. It's like almost Akira levels of uh, stuff to be uh, horrified by. I I think I, I, I'm with you on the sounds. There's one point in... Uh, God, I am so sorry. I, I'm so terrible at names that with the five death row inmates, I just started calling them different names. And so... The guy who looked like Macho Man Randy Savage, that guy. At one point, his ear gets cut off, and, like, it literally makes, like, a noise. And I remember going, oh, no, so you're right. It was very spot on and rather gross at times. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, this is a show, you know, normally, you know, your characters might get injured. Characters in Baki get what? Not only get maimed, but they stay that way the entire show. You know, there's a guy who's like gets his face blown off by a grenade, and he's just like that for the rest of the show. Like that's him now. The guy loses his ear. The 
the ways the, the manga comes up just to, like, obliterate people are is remarkable. I mean, you know, this is a show where people barf up hand grenades to throw people. Yeah, you know, they fight. You know, they, like, turn themselves into, uh, like, hedgehogs because so much glass is sticking out of their body. It's just, like, crazy body horror nonsense. It's really wild. Like, the survivability of their injuries, too. Like, you're right, the, the injuries do stay, but, oh my god, how many dudes did we see in giant, like, by the fourth or fifth giant fire in a dojo? I was like, really? Yeah, I mean, they're all, they're space marines. They look yeah. like space marines. They can, they can take anything like space marines. It must be a horrifying just existence to be mm. a normal human being in the Baki universe. Because, <laughs> like, it's it's worse than living in, like, a superhero world. Like, there's you, who looks like a normal human being, and then, and then someone uh, comes up, but it's just, like, you know, 10 feet tall, and built like a map truck, and you have to go, go and have the same universe together. If they ever get angry, it's just, like... It's so over for you. There's there's nothing you can do. There's a great scene, which it's both an incredible scene and also I won't complain about it. So there's the the character is this one of these death row inmates who has come to Japan and you know, he's one of the world's greatest and most brutal fighters. But the the idea is that at, at the start near the start of the show he breaks into this dojo of this particular school of martial arts and then like names the fighting master. And so the whole school vows revenge against him. But he's so powerful that they have to arrange a duel between, like, the most talented disciple of their school and the Macho Man Randy Savage guy in an abandoned amusement park. But he's so powerful that they have to gather every single follower of the school of martial arts in the country to form a giant convoy to escort just him to the abandoned amusement park, which encapsulates just, like, the power level uh, <laughs> multiplication in this show. Uh, it's an incredible scene. And it builds up the, the, the tension uh, so well. Uh, and then they arrive at the big park and a huge exposition dub happens. And then a flashback happens. And then a flashback happens inside the flashback, which <laughs> which is one of my frustrations with the show, which is it's probably fine in the manga, but sometimes the pacing gets super wonky. Where we have a moment like that where you're like, the momentum is so strong and you're so pumped to see this fight. And then they just like slam on the brakes and stop it for like 15 minutes before you and it eventually revs up again but you you know you've lost your your drive by then it's like ah. and the plotting also is very bizarre like there's entire arcs that just eventually just kind of stop <laughs> like it's they don't even end they're just like i guess we won't do that anymore like the whole the whole plot with the escaped inmates it just sort of ends <laughs> and it's like all right we're going to china i guess uh, very strange, sometimes frustrating show on that front. It's it's kind of all over the place. I, I I got the impression that they kind of ran out of ideas of how to have these fights because I felt that the first season did a pretty damn good job, right? And then Oliver comes into play, and then, like, the other three inmates, you know, it just kind of, by midway of season two, it goes off the rails. I mean, like, Duncan kept fighting people and surviving, and then he he saved the kung fu fighter guy, and then he was helped to go back to health, and then he, like, burned down the dojo, and then, like, there was the thing where, like, he would wake up, and, and that one dude whose dad was 
the dojo owner, you know, would punch him down and tell him to submit, but then he survived, but then he was like, maybe a good guy, but no, you know, like, I was like, where is this even going? Yeah, it definitely feels like one of those long-running manga situations where it's not entirely clear if it is going anywhere, even within individual arcs, much less in the long term, so you sort of just have to go along for the ride, and to put clear, like, it's a wild ride, like I said, there's a scene where a man flexes so hard that it, like, sends shockwaves across the entire Earth and cracks the Statue of Liberty, and a group of incredibly buff United States Marines have to throw chains around the Statue of Liberty and pull it back together by their own strength. Like, so the the moment-to-moment is wild enough to keep your attention, but there are frequently times where you're like, what is actually happening? Where? Why? Where? Who? I don't know anymore. I admittedly was just kind of, I'm going to admit that Baki kept my interest for a long time, but the plotting of Baki, by the end of the second season, I was kind of done with even trying to care about any kind of plot, because once they introduced this new tournament, I was like, then what was the death row inmate thing? Right, you didn't finish the last tournament. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I also didn't really... I thought that the Muhammad Ali Jr. character was kind of lame. So I was I was kind of like, oh, well, then, but you had this real good thing going, and did you just not know how to how to end it? <laughs> you know? This uh, almost brings up something I kind of wanted to talk about here, which was just the peculiarities of Netflix and how they treated Baki. Because they want you to think that the Baki they have on Netflix, you know, you can jump in, Everything's fine. It's a straight through line. This is the show. But it skips over stuff that had already been adapted in an anime like uh, almost 20 years ago now, which is not something that they have available. And uh, they've kind of straddled that kind of line uncomfortably in a couple of ways. Uh, Netflix anime has, for example. They have another title like Cabinary of the Iron Fortress. They have the movie version of that. The series is on Prime. The movie that follows the series is on Netflix. And Netflix has to sell that to you as if, well, you don't really need to watch the series first. It's this kind of, I, I don't know, it's, it's this uh, need to present things as whole if it's what you have, regardless of whether or not that's true. That actually explains why they had so many. I, I felt once I was told that the Baki on the Netflix was indeed a continuation of a 90s adaptation of the manga it explained why there were so many damn flashbacks or explanations of these characters i felt a little bit put out because i felt like i could have enjoyed some of the callback characters and cared about them more if i had watched the original or they could have just if if they wanted to do it that way they could have cut so many people out of it but they kept throwing more and more and more characters into this mishmash of fighting. It, it got to put like, I mean, honestly, by the end of season one, I was like, so who are these death row inmates even fighting anymore? Because they keep going after people who weren't even part of the original deal. And other people start going after them too. And it's like, but so was it like everybody who was in that original competition who's game? But we never got any of that at all. And I got a little tired, honestly, of, like, there were so many cool fucking fight scenes. But I'll be honest, 
I started getting bored. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, you lose so much context. That yes. <laughs> so there's just so many times that I can watch a man explode or somebody's eyes be gouged out or watch two dudes who are like the most powerful dudes who ever fought dudes in the world fight and destroy each other, but then get up and walk away from each other because, you know, you just, that's, that's not proper fighting style or whatever. Like before I'm like, come on. Yeah, there there are a few too many. I mean, that was kind of what I was going on with the uh, the amusement park scene. It's it narratively feels like it's building you up to a big climax, uh, and you get there, and then you know it, it pulls that break, and it's you want something to to reach that peak, and then you know move on. But it, it just it keeps adding all these new things, and you just never really get that sense of conclusion that you want, and it is. Like, and I think too, with what William was saying, I, I don't think this is even one that Netflix necessarily produced, right? I mean, they licensed it. I'm not sure if they had a hand in funding its production or not. Um, which makes it even more kind of confusing because, you know, the, the whole, they're really obsessed with calling anything they license a Netflix original, which is going to make people think like, oh, if Netflix licensed it, that would be, obviously they wouldn't license something, or obviously they wouldn't create something. That's like in the middle of its storyline, and they probably wouldn't, but they didn't create it. They licensed it. Creates a lot of confusion for people, uh, which will probably only get worse because it's it's just gotten even more messy uh, over the past, you know, because now they're calling things that they make in the like United States anime. It's a big mess. Yeah, one one example I like to use in talking about Netflix original series is. Better Call Saul is a Netflix original series. Star Trek Discovery is a Netflix original series. The Good Place is a Netflix original series. In fact, all three of them have specific, unique, a Netflix original series title cards. And in the case of Good Place and Better Call Saul, these drop in the middle of episodes after the, the uh, main credits. They're very persistent in labeling anything that they have the exclusive rights to as an original series, regardless of their specific relationship with it otherwise. Which I dislike a lot, because it used to be that what companies would do is they'd call them an exclusive. Like, to use another example, which uh, our American listeners may not know, Sky Atlantic was the place which had Game of Thrones throughout its run in Ireland and the United Kingdom. And they called it a Sky exclusive, or they called it, they called their channel on occasion Home of Thrones, because it was by far the most popular show they had. But they didn't put, like, Sky original series at the front of it. They would reserve that privilege to something like Penny Dreadful, which is a series of Sky Atlantic co-produced with Showtime, or Chernobyl, which they co-produced with HBO. But Netflix just treats everything the same way, and it, it gives a misleading sense of what's going on here behind the scenes. And so you think something like, say, to give an anime example, you think Knights of Sidonia is a Netflix series. It has the Netflix original logo and everything. But it's not on Netflix anymore because they lost license to it because they didn't actually own it, you know? Good show. You can't watch it on Netflix now. Such is life. Yeah, very bizarre. I'm going to take a huge U-turn right now. Um, <laughs> but I just I just feel uh, all the listeners should know uh, about the incredible man that was the real-life Frank Dukes. We need to talk about him. And, and, oh, yeah. And his film for Because, okay, so... The movie Bloodsport, right? The, the basic premise is that there's a man named Frank Dukes, who's a martial artist and also uh, works for the U.S. military, and 
basically, when Frank Dukes was young, he met this Japanese martial arts master. And the Japanese martial arts master decided to take him under his wing and make him an apprentice. When the Japanese martial arts master's biological son died, he lent the the, the, the family martial arts tradition to Frank Dukes. All right? So Frank Dukes trains, and there's a underground fighting competition held every five years, I think. No holds barred of the world's greatest martial artist of all styles. They're invited. It's called the Kumite. And Frank Dukes, as the, the heir to the great uh, to Shindoshi's legacy, his teacher's legacy, goes to the Kumite. And, uh, of course, he emerges victorious and is the first white guy to do it. Now, at the end of Bloodsport, it says that these events have been based off the real-life experiences of Frank Dukes. So, who is Frank Dukes? Frank Dukes was an American-Canadian martial artist, uh, and basically one of these classic hucksters that emerged out of the post-Vietnam period. He's one of my favorite character archetypes. So Frank Dukes was a Marine reservist, right? So he served in the United States Marine Reserves, but after he became a martial artist, he also became a teller of tall tales, and he became a novelist, or a memoirist, but of course his memoirs were entirely fabricated. And in his memoirs, he said things not only like the story of Frank Dukes that we see in the film, the Kumite, but he also, you know, was uh, CIA, Mac saw every three-letter acronym of the United States government. You could possibly imagine doing secret missions, you know, deniable ops. And, you know, he was just one of these fraudulent characters who built this huge legend and uh, submitted things to martial arts magazines about, you know, how he used his martial arts in the field and combat. And then, of course, eventually he was nailed to be whatever reasonably probably should have assumed from the beginning, which is that he was a huge fraud. Uh, none of these things actually happened, but it adds, I, I hate to use the term metatextual, not because it's a bad term, because it gets overused and misused now, and I find it very annoying, but there's a really funny, knowing who the frank, real fact use is, adds an incredibly funny metatextual element to the movie because on one hand it's you know this kick-ass action movie just straightforwardly good time but uh, you have to know at every moment that you're watching it that you were also looking into the, the fantasies of, of like, middle-aged dork who's imagining himself as the ultimate warrior as the ultimate cia agent as as someone who is capable of performing the most incredible feats and it also you know, really taps into the kind of funny late 70s, 80s, uh, like, Orientalism angle, because, you know, his, his teacher is this incredible 70s stereotype, and he's, you know, at, at the start of the movie, young Frank Dukes finds a samurai sword in his house, and he's, you know, his teacher's like, you do not take the samurai sword, you must earn the katana. <laughs> and, you know, he calls him, you know, Shidoshi and Kumite, and, and all this stuff, and of course, the basic plotline, of course, of, of Bloodsport, you know, to any person, it's probably very obvious that this is just a huge ripoff of Venture the Dragon, right? Underground fighting competition, no holds barred, Bloodsport between the world's greatest martial artists at a exotic location. It's Enter the Dragon, right? It's like, it's just, and so you're looking at, you know, the unvarnished id of this dorky white guy placing himself in the Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. And of course, it's extra funny because, you know, Bruce Lee's films were all about, like, reclaiming Asian dignity and Asian strength. <laughs> and then, you know, like, five, ten years later, you have dorky white guys being like, but what if 
What if the white guy could win the greatest martial arts competition of all time? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be, well, what if it was me? That would be awesome. Uh, and so it really does add this extra layer of, of sort of campiness to the entire endeavor. And people like this still exist. You know, there's still like all sorts of people exaggerating in their, you know, military careers and all that, but they don't make them quite in this mold anymore. You know, your Frank Dukes or, you know, your Bo Greitz. He was really in the Special Forces, but also an insane person who lied all the time. Um, just this whole ecosystem of hucksters that emerged in the early 70s and really were important to the to the sort of B-movie industry all through really into the early 90s. Fascinating. Fascinating people. One, one thing um, I liked about him when I, when I looked it up after the movie is that, uh, you know, you mentioned a very stereotyped Japanese teacher. Well, Ducks did claim that he had a Japanese person who taught him in martial arts. And the name of this person was Senzo Tanaka. And when it was pointed out that Senzo Tanaka's name is the same one as that in an Ian Fleming novel, You Only Live Twice, Ducks' response was that Fleming must have based it on his teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... It, um, it, it's, it's a hell of, hell of a save, I have to say. Yeah, these kinds of, like, grifters are still... It's still pretty common in martial arts. These white guys who are like, uh, yeah, my master in Thailand um, taught me like secret techniques and um, passed to me his lineage of martial arts from ancient times. And <laughs> But Tom, um, the thing that you were mentioning about the um, Bruce Lee's script, well, not script, but the idea of Asians fighting back against the white people and then being <laughs> turned around as white people fighting back or <laughs> against Asians, um, it does. It did remind me of something in Bloodsport. So the tournament itself, it's an international tournament, right? But we don't actually know from which nations the competitors are. We don't know which country, um, anyone else, except for two things. Um, obviously, we know um, the main character and his friend are American, and the movie goes out of its way to make sure that we know the villain is Korean, like Bolo. Um, I forget what his name was in the um, in the movie, but... Uh, I think it's still Bolo. Oh, was it? Okay, well, that's yeah. the, that's the actor's stage name. It's also because Bolo, uh, the actor who played Bolo, also played a character named Bolo, who also behaves exactly the same way in Enter the Dragon. Just to, <laughs> right. <laughs> just to reinforce the ripoff angle. Not, not, just the, not, not just the same way, I believe he has the same dialogue. Read that uh, he, he doesn't actually say anything in this movie. He doesn't say in Enter the Dragon. Uh, he actually reuses a line that Bruce Lee said in Enter the Dragon. But so anyway, the the movie goes out of its way to make sure we know his Korean. He's like wearing a um, a headband that's um, has a Korean flag on it, and his corner man, his jersey has a big Korean flag on it. And I was wondering why the movie was doing this because I mean. The actor himself is from Hong Kong. Why would they deliberately change it so he was Korean? And then I realized if he wasn't Korean, then the story would be about uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme flying into Hong Kong and beating up the local hero. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would probably go over that, huh? <laughs> like the white guy flies to Hong Kong and just beats up the local champion. Like, what the hell? Well... 
I find that the 80s Orientalism that was mentioned earlier, like, it's it's really fascinating to me how, I mean, like, I know that the Kaku movies existed before this, of course, and I know that in the 70s, particularly, Hong Kong produced movies, and before that, even, like, Japanese samurai movies, you know, really, really big, and got really big here as well, at least among Am I correct to say, like, among art house scene people when it comes to samurai films, or were they bigger than that? I admit that my knowledge of that is a little hazy. Yeah, I think the samurai stuff is mostly art house, and then obviously in in the 70s, you get a big right. explosion of, of Hong Kong stuff, in, right. in, which is at that time. Yeah. Nowadays, they've been reassessed, but at the time, it was very much considered sort of B-movie kitsch stuff. Right. But, so, but uh, it was uh, it was very popular. Like Enter the Dragon was a legitimate hit. Oh yeah, so like I mean, I I it, super super definitely popular and popular from the you know from actually all Asian cast etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I find it really interesting that in the eighties, <laughs> like Hollywood decided that they needed to pick it up but put white people in it. You know, I I know that that is just how America do, <laughs> but like I I. I know that this was the only one that came, like... Um, yeah, Karate Kid, obviously. Karate Kid, of course. The one that I always think of is Big Trouble in Little China. But at least in that one, the American is, like, a big dum-dum, you know? <laughs> like, and, and Asian cast are the ones who actually have any kind of competency in what they're doing to fight the evil vampire man. But... Yeah, like it, it's I I find it really fascinating that that they didn't think that they could just keep making similar movies with an Asian cast and doing hits because they were already, you know. Yeah, that is the interesting part. It's not like as Will said, it's not like Enter the Dragon was a niche little like cult film. Like it was huge, it was big, and obviously like you know, Bruce Lee was a unique, not only a uniquely talented person, but he also inhabited both cinematic worlds. Right, he worked in American TV, he worked in Hong Kong film. There is a a unique transference to him that was you know probably a lot harder to accomplish with other actors from sort of Hong Kong cinema. So there's that aspect to it, but. Yeah, it is interesting that, you know, in the 80s in particular, it did sort of shift over to this, and, you know, part of it's probably that was, you know, it was a steady uptick in the popularity of this stuff. You know, you could say it's anxiety over, you know, rising Japan, blah, 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 blah. There's probably a whole bunch of interlocking reasons why that happened, but it is, like, a very obvious and discernible trend, and so it is sort of interesting to dig into why a little bit. And uh, just, like, doing this stuff for white people was kind of like the default Hollywood reaction to looking at something that was popular. I mean, we've mentioned Bruce Lee, and we've mentioned the 70s, but there's one particular thing that comes out in the 70s, which allegedly was a ripoff of a Bruce Lee proposal, which is Kung Fu, with David Carradine. And even if it isn't a ripoff of Bruce Lee's TV series proposal, Warrior, which was eventually made into a TV series like a couple of years ago, even if it isn't a ripoff, it's clearly cashing in on the huge upsurge in popularity in kung fu movies to do a TV series about a character who they say is half Asian to excuse the fact they cast David Carradine in the role. Okay, uh, well, I totally recommend that Warrior TV show, by the way, if you're into that kind of martial arts uh, 70s thing. But going back to the subject of Orientalism and the treatment of race in particular, in Bloodsport, I did notice this very prominently. So in the opening, they show the um, uh, the competitors uh, preparing to go to the tournament, right? 
And the first black guy they show, they show him climbing a tree and smashing coconuts with his hands. And then later on in the tournament, we see that he actually practices monkey-style kung fu, which is is a real thing, but it's a Chinese martial art. So that movie was deliberately Uh, um, choosing to portray the black guy that way. I was like, I don't, when I was watching it, I was like, I know most of the, because they brought in a lot of real martial artists for this movie, obviously, not just the leads. And so I was like, well, maybe it's maybe it's an obscure martial arts that I'm not familiar with. Give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe. But that confirms all of my suspicions. I was like, I was like this seems super racist. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I I would say that. I mean. The the racist elements of blood sport are kind of hard to deny nowadays. I mean, even for its time, <laughs> you know, like, and just I know that the Orientalism is is what is most on display, of course. But I feel like just in Hollywood in general, we are just now really maybe starting to get past this idea that white people are necessary to sell a film in the United States and white people are also only going to watch a film with another white person is in it. And the white guy has to be also the winner, you know, well, I mean, I I mean, over the past like decade. Yes. I would yes. Say, and it's, I mean, it, it sort of came out of, you know, the cult film sort of sphere. And then at this point it sort of trickled into mainstream, but you know, like stuff like the raid, I mean, that movie blew up so huge and you know like you said sort of reconfirmed what really people already knew from the 70s which is that if you make these movies and they totally like whip and are awesome people will watch them even if they're made in indonesia because people don't give a fuck about it i it's it's incredible how systemic the racism is in hollywood that even in 2021 we're pushing like even a couple years ago the fucking oscar winner was green book you know a, a movie where two guys in the 50s, a black man and a white man, and the white man is somewhat racist, and then he learns not to be racist, you know? Like, just why? Why do we need that story? Why did, why did they think we still want that story? Because clearly we don't. The audience has been ready for decades to see other stories told from other points of view. And I feel like, you know, of course, you can look at Bloodsport and go, oh, it's so of its time. But I don't know if that movie wouldn't be made again today. Just maybe with a little bit fewer, you know, guys who are black who know monkey kung fu and crush coconuts. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if you want to say, would they make a big production today about martial arts, heavily inspired by the success of martial arts in the 1970s, and then cast a white guy. My answer to that is Marvel's Iron Fist. Mm. But the big innovation with Marvel's Iron Fist, however, is that while with Bloodsport they cast a guy who was a professional stuntman and really knew his stuff in terms of selling a fight, with Iron Fist they cast someone who was just some guy. He was on Game of Thrones. He'd never fought before, and it really, really showed, you know, progress. Although the um, Iron Fist comic book was specifically also about taking those 70s martial arts and putting a white guy in them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's why I said, like, inspired by the 70s, because it was through the comic book. 
right? But if they were making Bloodsport today, I think they might not have as much Arab racism in there because, you know, it's the 80s and they're still like, the US is still freaking out about like, um, oil shortages and so on. <laughs> but then in Bloodsport, there's these Arabs who are like, going to gang rape the hero's girlfriend and like for some reason they're always wearing their um what do you call them the head covering the kefia even yeah, when they're yeah, fighting yeah. which well, why are they doing that right it's very yeah i mean they obviously in the 80s you have like you know what's uh what's the chuck norris movie delta force people were very wound up about you know gaddafi and saddam and yeah i mean obviously both of them are uh dead now but, you know, they were like the big boogeyman in the, in the you know, late 70s and 80s and a lot of these movies. I gotta say, um, Bloodsport, the story, even on the phone, makes no sense. I mean, for one thing, the tournament is called Kumite, which is Japanese. It means sparring in Japanese. And, well, first off, if it's in Hong Kong, why does it doesn't have a Japanese name? And second, they are not sparring. They're obviously fighting to the death. And it's not a practice fight. It's guys, like, beating each other bloody. And I don't understand why um the Frank Dukes character was kept insisting to his uh, girlfriend when she's saying, he should quit. Why is this so important to you? And he keeps telling her, you don't know what this means to us. But what does it mean to them? Because there's, like, I, I think he's implying that there's some kind of, like, honor or, like, spirituality aspect to this combat. But... In the movie itself, it's obviously just something organized for underground gambling. <laughs> the triads. Yeah, that's, a, that's one of the funniest parts. Is just like the way that the you know the teacher presents it at the start. Yeah, you think it's like this sacred competition of like it's purely for the warriors. But then it's like it was dingy. It's in the the walled city, which it was shot in the real walled city. If anyone is a walled city fan, there's like I don't know two three minutes of real footage from inside, which is cool. But honestly, that was my favorite part of the movie. It's in this like dingy place, and it's all gambling. And it's like, but uh, he does. Excuse me, Jesse. Uh, uh, obviously, weren't watching closely enough because he he says to uh, his lady friend, he says, "You're trying to be the best journalist you can be. I'm trying to be the best I can be." And that's 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 his explanation. Which, again, when I said that this movie is like tapping into the id of the real frantics, I think that's like basically it. <laughs> he's, he's like, I do this all because I'm the strongest man, and that's cool. I think that's like it. I think that's it. <laughs> that's, that's the dream. That's the vision. There's no spiritual basis for this. You know, it's not some like life mythology thing. Like, Bruce tried to create or whatever. It's just like, I want to be the tools. That's it. There you got it. And as a point of trivia, Frank Dukes, the actual person, actually sued Jean-Claude Van Damme because he said that Van Damme stole his like script for the movie The Quest, which I don't know if that's true, but I've seen The Quest and it's terrible. I would not steal the script for anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like a uh, blood sport it uh what do you call it it also doesn't make sense that they would hold an international tournament in kowloon walled city it doesn't exist anymore but it's this part of hong kong that's like that was extraterritorial ter it's like outside of any government because of some weird 
loophole in the treaty between the British and Chinese. So um, I, I think uh, I think that's exactly why they held it there. I mean, it's this secret illegal tournament. You think it would be held on the land equivalent of international waters? Like to be fair to them. Yeah, I think since they they're allowed to murder each other, which obviously would be frowned upon by most legal authorities. Like this isn't the Olympics. This is like uh, the underground boxing versus version of the Olympics. I think the one in the actual Frank Duke story was uh, in the Bahamas. Yeah, but, it's uh, super goofy. Bahamas, eh? Yeah. Wow. Actually, I think the Bahamas government said there was no way a tournament that he describes could have happened without them knowing about it. Well, not only that, how could they? They don't even have the infrastructure to, I feel, support that many people. People coming in to watch. People coming in to. Like, I, I feel like it would be very fire festival <laughs> if it was held in the Bahamas. That makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, they definitely uh, made a smart choice to uh, change the change the location from the film. A little more exciting, Hong Kong. A little more I, appropriate for the type of combat being conducted. I'm just, like, trying to imagine, like, the Bahamas. Down the beach, like. Like, some shady group in the Bahamas going, like, God, you know what? How how do we up our gambling urns? I know. What if we send out a mailer to everyone, to every like fighting group in the world? <laughs> Have them clandestinely fly into our small island nation. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, not sure Frank Dukes was really like a math novelist. Uh, thought about the implications of his work very much, so. I feel like you know, you, if you're gonna grift, you gotta you gotta get the details, you know. See the uh, Frank Dukes grift; it can't really work today anymore because mixed martial arts tournaments exist. So if someone is talking that big, eventually they're gonna say, "Okay, prove it. Go inside the octagon. Let's see how we fight." <laughs> right. Yeah. That is true. Or they're gonna Google you in 15 seconds. Well. Uh... To be fair to Dukes, he uh, yeah, um, he did have a, a say for that was that he's retired, so he's not doing it anymore. He's finished. Well, well, he, doesn't he doesn't. He doesn't need to fight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you are right that it would be hard to do it today because you know people have Google and people have resources and people can talk to people who are experts in the field. But you know, he's in Hollywood. These people don't know what Kumite means. You know, they, they don't know anything about martial arts other than they saw the Bruce Lee movie. And he's also seen the Bruce Lee movie. And he can make it sound similar. It's like, oh, it's, it's like that movie we saw. So this this could be legit. You know, they're not interrogating this a lot. Right. Although even if you look at the people who made Bloodsport, the director in his, like, uh, interviews doesn't seem to think that he thought it was necessarily true. He just thought it was a good story for a movie. And I think he's on to something there because it's, it's Enter the Dragon. Of course, it's a good story for a movie. <laughs> right. Well, I, I find it really interesting, too, that, like, I mean, you talk about the mixed martial arts, and from my understanding of mixed martial arts is, like, at this point, they've kind of whittled down the most effective forms of martial arts that really work in a sparring match wherein you're not trying to kill the other person, right? Because what I mostly see is a lot of grappling, so... Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and sometimes kicking. So a little bit of Muay Thai kind of kickbox. Am I am I incorrect in assuming that? Like, I'm not 
super far on the up and up on when it comes to UFC kind of stuff, but that's mostly what I see. I don't see people like going at each other, one person throwing down some kung fu and the others with full force karate or something like that. You know what I mean? It's almost always the grappling and every now and then some kick. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like um, in the early Ultimate Fighting Championships, it was classical martial arts, like classic karate, classic kung fu, fighting against each other, but it was like an open competition, so anyone could come in. So the boxers would come in and would just almost always destroy the um, the karate guys because okay. I think the classical martial arts, it takes a lot of training to actually get effective at it because all these weird techniques aren't really, it doesn't come naturally. And martial artists have a tendency to like focus a technique over like their actual exercising and, you know, a boxer. How much time do they spend, like, just skipping rope? Like, their stamina is incredible. They can just basically outlast martial artists. So, but even besides that, if you're pitting, like, a Muay Thai guy against just a regular Kung Fu guy, the Muay Thai guy beats him because the Muay Thai guy is, like, a, a working class guy who's, <laughs> who's doing Muay Thai to actually move up in the world. He has an economic incentive to win like a burning incentive to win, which is uh, uh, which is quite different from um, basically these guys who are mostly just in it for like these weird issues of pride or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. When we're talking about the reality of this kind of fight, which obviously at this point, this is all speculation. Frank Dukes could have never won the Kubite because he was fighting with a form that, you know, honestly, somebody else would have, would have, beat him down with or again just like thinking about how if he had gotten into a grapple situation or if he had been thrown you know then he would have been off his feet and done right yeah. <laughs> real Frank much Dukes, although i think jean-claude van damme actually could win but frank dukes could definitely not <laughs> oh yes okay let's let's put frank dukes on one side and jean-claude van damme on another because i feel jean-claude van damme very skilled and he, he had been doing various martial arts for years before he even did this movie. So could John claude Van Damme win the Kumite? That's, that, that is a a chance. That's a question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't think he's ever done grappling. Although one thing that we did not mention was the martial art that uh, Frank Dukes said that um, he was a master of was ninjutsu, which, oh oh my God, you know, like ancient ninja master. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. Not not only that, he has his own form of ninjutsu that he teaches. I mean, I guess he learned it from somewhere, so maybe it's true. But come on. <laughs> I mean, like, he learned it from again a character from an Ian Fleming novel. I think we can assume he's you know not on the up and up with what he calls, and I looked it up, ducks Ryu ninjutsu. That is his thing. Like, I'm just going to assume right off the bat that he's one of those, you know, your strip mall belt machine kind of places. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Although, on the subject of grappling, I do appreciate that Baki actually had that in there. Um, ah, yes. They, they yeah, did well, actually show it. Well, it needs to be said that uh, Itagaki, funnily, very funnily, um, Itagaki is actually also... Uh, mentioned it in the intro, but he is also a martial artist, a real martial artist. And he was also an active duty soldier for, was, like, five years or something in the, the Japanese military. 
and not our deservists like Frank Dukes. So he actually does have a pretty deep well of experience, and you know I think he's taken part in various competitions over the years. Uh, I mean, I think he's older now and is retired, but is is much closer to the real deal than Frank Dukes is. Or is the real deal, I guess. And he doesn't, you know, exaggerate that he was a super spy. Well, you know, like I will have to say with Baki, beyond just the magical power element of the fighting and the nonsense styles, like the the void style, you know. I did appreciate that they did throw in elements of actual martial arts style that they would show off. I liked that. I, I think that one of my favorite scenes in the entire show literally had no purpose in the plot. And it was when Oliver was learning how to do judo and failing completely at actual judo because he just used his insane, all powerful strength to win, you know, but you know, you got a little, a little glimpse of what judo, what you do in judo, you know, just like with the form of karate that was taught at, you know, Patch and Sons Dojo. Uh, right. I, this is slight, slightly a swerve, but I feel like I'm obligated to, to uh, mention it now that I've remembered. Since we're talking about Bloodsport being that the, the white guy comes in and conquers martial arts, there's... <laughs> Uh, Baki is like sort of the opposite, less in the show, but so in the in the manga, Baki Senior, the main character's father, who's the most powerful martial artist on earth. In the manga, it's a ritual that he virtually hum- humiliates every successive United States president. <laughs> um, so he makes George W. Bush into his driver. He makes Obama sign a like Iran nuclear deal style treaty with not japan with with baki senior personally because he's so powerful and then trump immediately tries to like become his dog and impress him by going around and hitler saluting he hasn't humiliated Biden yet but it's it's presumably on the agenda uh, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah so uh, in, in the baki verse baki senior is the humiliator of, of the white man <laughs> you know i'm okay with that <laughs> Good time. Great time. I look forward to seeing to seeing what kind of things happen next. You know, for Baki, like they take a long time to explain the martial arts and scientific principles behind their fighting. When they're in the middle of fighting, time slows or something, and then they have like these minutes long exposition where the um one fighter just patiently explaining to the other guy how exactly it is that he's beating him. I guess they have to show that they're not winning not just physically, but intellectually as well. That right, their right. D- domination is so complete. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, part of that's some of the manga kind of DNA. There's a lot of that. And, I mean, Baki's obviously, I think, sign-in. But, you know, in, in, any, in any sort of battle manga, you get a lot of focus on, like, oh, my ultimate technique and so on. I do admit that one thing I did find hilarious throughout was when it would pause and then have the narrator explain, not the fighting technique, but the the science behind the thing that they were doing. Only, of course, in every instance, the science was complete bullshit, you know? Like, there was no truth in any of the means of how they exploded a head or whatever, you know, or how someone's eyes... You know, or someone's fight, fight strength indicated their ability to fight or their pain tolerance or all sorts right, of right, right. bullshitty things. I mean, it was like, it was a beautiful encapsulation of bro science 
in its finest form. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's like, he just has to follow it through to its this is an absurd conclusion. I mean, we, I already mentioned earlier the guy flexing so hard that sends a shockwave across literally the entire earth. Uh, just, and you can't just let it be. You have to be like, no, this is, if you could flex this hard, how would it work? But uh, if anyone has any pressing statements that they want to make. I think uh, we've pretty much reached the end, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll ask the question that we always ask. Would you recommend these two things, Amber? So I would always recommend Bloodsport with the big asterisk that it does get racist, guys. I mean, it does. It just does. But it is a very classic. If, if you want to see, like, classic 80s B-movie where it's just fun to watch, I I have enjoyed this movie since childhood. And... Even though all it means in Japanese is spar, kumite, chanting kumite, is is really fulfilling. <laughs> when it comes to Baki, I'm kind of, like, I'm half and half, because there are parts of Baki that I really think are fun and funny and just kind of cool, but it treads the same ground a lot. The third season was genuinely difficult to get through for me because I felt like we had done all of this before and I felt like we weren't going anywhere with it. And I would say, I would say watch the first season if you want to, just to get a taste for it, you know, but after that, it's up to you whether or not you want to finish it because it's not what I would consider something that I would consider totally essential. Right. Yeah. So as for me, I think I agree with Amber. Actually, Bloodsport, I had it mixed up with Kickboxer all this time. And then I went to watch it and I was like, oh, okay, it's the other Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. But yeah, if you can set aside its very um, problematic aspects, it is a very satisfying story about a guy, actually a bunch of guys just like punching and kicking each other. And then one guy emerges as the top puncher and kicker. That's uh, that's a classic martial arts movie. That's basically what you should expect out of a martial arts movie. It gives you what you want. And as for Baki, uh, yeah, so we are basically dropped into the story, in the middle of the story, when it's already been going on for how many chapters already. And it is pretty annoying when like all these guys from before are dropped in and then all the characters are like, holy crap, it's him. And he got beaten by that other guy. And then you're like, huh? Who, who the, well, why do we care? And yes, it does um, uh, what has been adapted for this anime. If we're just judging it by what we're seeing, it kind of goes nowhere. Like, what happened to the death row guys? Why are we suddenly in China? So Baki kind of like is enjoyable in the first half, maybe. The second half is not as good, although uh, I, I think I can still find stuff to enjoy there. So kind of a yes for Bloodsport, kind of a maybe for Baki. I guess my feeling is is that if you like Kajib no Ippo, Baki might be up your alley. You may want to look into the, the anime before Netflix, which I heard of, but I haven't seen it, so I can't recommend it like directly, but it might be of interest to try to find that. I don't know where I want to go. As for Bloodsport? I think it's it's pretty solid. You know, um, the acting isn't good. The writing is ropey. The politics are questionable. 
but it knows what it's doing when it comes to having guys punch other guys. And it's what if Enter the Dragon with a Belgian and it doesn't suck, basically. Yeah, everybody's pretty much hit all the bases for me. I think Baki is... Some people will probably watch Baki and love it and just, you know, just gobble up everything Baki-related, but I think for most people, like, the highs in Baki are so high, but it really does drag sometimes. So. And so I think, you know, watch those first 12 episodes. If you're really into it, sure, continue, but more likely than not, you'll be like, oh, that was some crazy nonsense, and then you can put it aside, except for episode 20, which you should also watch, because it's incredibly funny. And then, yeah, Bloodsport is like that primo classic A stuff. It's got the fun synth soundtrack. It's got some nice footage of, of Hong Kong at its sort of most classic period. And it's, yeah, it's just a satisfying, you know, underdog beat em up. A really good way to, you know, waste 90 minutes. So check it out. All right. So I guess it's time for me to do this video. You can find us on Podcastle in the Sky at WordPress.com. That's where we post all our new episodes and sometimes some other content. You can also follow us at Flying Podcastle on Twitter. That is honestly where you will get the most interaction if you wish. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple because it is nice to hear that, you know, that you like what you hear. And you can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. And next time, we are going to move away from the male sphere and plummet or jut into, shoot off into, rise above, into the very female sphere of two shows with a, I feel, a great female cast, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power and Revolutionary Girl, Utena. So yeah.